0: We're live from Watkinson School. So yesterday I had, in preparing for this show, what the British comedian Frank Skinner calls an idiotic Eureka moment, an IEM. Um, And my IEM is this. For quite some time, I have believed that there there was a place I would would have assumed somewhere off the coast of California called the Wild Isle of Dogs. Uh, and then it was maybe close to Catalina or something like that. I don't know. I've also been thinking, I should look it up on a map or something. Where's the wild Isle, Isle of Dogs? And the reason I thought there was is because I thought the song went, I dig a French bikini on the wild Isle of Dogs. <laughs> by a palm tree in the sand. So when I was getting ready the lyrics, which I think you all have these. I hope everybody does have the yellow lyric sheets. I pulled up, you know, they have all these... Google lyrics and various things like that. And I thought, it's wrong. <laughs> it doesn't say the Wild Isle of Dogs. No. And it was about 30 seconds before I realized, there is no Wild Isle of Dogs. That's not really how the song goes. You've yeah. been singing it wrong for 45 years. <laughs> um, but singing it with great enthusiasm and great gusto. So before we get you some vocal production out of you, I just you know, want to say in general, this is um, a conversation that I have been having for nearly 45 years, not quite that many, with Steve Metcalf, you see him over at the piano there. He, he needs little introduction, Longtime writer about music, fabulous musical uh, genius in, in his own right, and most recently named President of the President's College of the University of Hartford. So like he's... From now on he's going to be wearing like mirrored sunglasses and driving around in a Jeep and stuff. He's El Presidente. Also joining us uh, from Bard College where he teaches composition, also does some teaching at the Hart School of Music, is a composer and as you can see is prepared to shred on acoustic guitar,
1: Matt Sargent
0: ladies and gentlemen. And you already know Terry Schrader. She's up here for the duration. And I think one reason for this is it goes back to a house concert at your house exactly a year ago.
2: Yeah, a year ago last night. Mike, talking to the mic? We, we did. We met a year ago and, and hatched this idea together.
0: Right. And a lot of it had to do, we were there for a house concert, and Terry, you were saying that when your kids were young, too, mm-hmm. like Sundays were just in, in the afternoon. After dinner s-
2: dance party. After it dinner was, dance party. Yep, Jill Sobule and the Beach Boys. Yeah, That's and you it. said Brian
0: Wilson. And Brian I said Wilson. to you, well, then let's do we often do something very musical here for this middle uh, segment in our series, this winter segment, so, and everybody will be craving the sun, or at least the, the illusion of the sun. So with that in mind, I'll ask you all to rise. I think standing for vocal production is a good idea.
3: <laughs> Mr. Mr. Metcalf, do you have any
0: instructions you want to give to them, or you know, tell them
3: their key or anything like that? Well, here's your key. I think you'll know this song. The inspiration for doing this at the beginning of the evening was that little scene in Annie Hall where Woody and Diane Keaton are walking down on their first date down the street, and he says, so let's kiss right now and not wait till the end of the evening, and that way all the... We're not suggesting you do that, by the way. (laughs) That's right. So instead of waiting for the very end for the sing-along, we're going to do one right now with actually what I believe is considered Brian's first published song.
2: That's what they say.
3: And it goes something like this... There we go. Okay, thank you. Thank you. you. Drive good carefully. Good
1: night.
0: Yes, have a good night. <laughs> so, as soon as you get your microphone in you know, a fixed that. position, Terry, and we're going to have quiz our two musical uh, geniuses over here, but a question you had, a question that you had about a sort of, the French would say, tristesse running through a song like this, right?
2: I did. I, I, I grew up listening to this music, but I, I think that even as a really little kid, I could detect That they were saying such happy boppy things, but the sound of the music sounded a little sad underneath it all. And I think, just even as a little girl, I felt like maybe the car's not really that cool or maybe they don't really get the girl every single time because there was this hint of melancholy. And I'm talking about being a little kid and then later on studying music and then having some vocabulary to really deconstruct those chords and realize that that was all quite intentional. And really brilliant but nonetheless it's like the world of emotions in a two minute 16 second song that was captivating and sad
4: and beautiful
0: well I'm sure the two musicians here want to talk about that Matt I know you have some thoughts about this
4: too this yeah story. I mean well it's funny I noticed the more I was learning a couple of these tunes that it goes the other way sometimes but usually things kind of slide downward in <laughs> Brian's songs in really unexpected ways that kind of cut against there's the cliche that happens that you almost always modulate up at the end but the internal stuff is always falling downward so like in that song for example there's the you know you know super super sad and sour while everything else above that is you know raining Really Happy poppy
0: yeah. so Micalf, give us your analysis
4: where where does that <laughs> sadness come well, from
3: Well, I honestly I think I mean as you know i'm I'm a, a great student of just the idea of melody and great melodies and why this gift comes to some people and not others, but I also think it's true, apart from the lyrics of of these tunes that that the tunes themselves have a kind of a wistfulness, a kind of a yearning quality, which I might. Even say is common to maybe all great tunes, and if you and if you don't have that you you sort of have Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, which'm you know, suddenly getting hostile here but um, you know i think I think the the whole question of what makes a great melody remains and always does and will remain a sort of mystery at the end of the day but 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 that wistfulness and that longing and yearning which we hear even in some of the up-tempo tunes, I think, is absolutely there and absolutely a quality that that makes these tunes kind of timeless.
0: And, you know, talking about Brian's lyrics is always complicated because he didn't always write the lyrics. In fact, he mainly didn't. Although we know recently, Matt and I have both read this book um, that's sort of allegedly an autobiography uh, of Brian's, that that he at least felt that whether he was working with Mike Love or Tony Asher or Van Dyke Parks, well, maybe not Van Dyke Parks, but um, that he would sit with them and make sure the lyrics were what he really thought they should be or were saying what i they they thought he thought they should be and like even surfer girl when you think about it he doesn't i mean this is a question the whole song is a question you know it's not this deal has not been made yet. Uh-huh. It's do you love me, <laughs> you know? and I and have watched you. I yeah. have watched yeah, you. So, you there, and there is that, that's kind of running through things yeah. a lot. But Matt, I don't know if you can do it on the guitar or whether you want Steve to do it, but I know uh, in the song, You Still Believe in Me, you hear that same, the kind of dropping chord structure you were talking about before.
4: Right? Oh. But then we end up you know, at the end. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about it in my head when I was coming over here. I was coming, trying to come up with the most cliche alternatives. Like if they were... That
0: would be if it were just a purely happy song. Yeah. Like you really you thought that...
4: You in me. And then we're just right back to happy. And it works totally fine, which is a funny thing. But, so this is a pretty intentional choice that really... Especially talking about, you believe in me, it's like, really? <laughs>
1: don't you? <laughs> yeah.
4: To a certain degree, Terry, we don't have to speculate
0: about the brokenness of this composer. I mean, he is, has been deaf in one ear for uh, pretty much his entire life. Is that a result of his father hitting him? I can't remember that's which one. I, I think one, that's right. one. just yeah, one Murray, theory. Have, one yeah, story. I'm gonna turn that microphone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, deaf in one ear, really afraid of his father has
4: auditory hallucinations. Yeah, I think he says in the book that he's deaf in one ear and hearing voices in the other ear, and he's <laughs> attempting to perform. No wonder his songs yeah. are sad. I don't know, Steve, like, sometimes
0: artists and fellow artists are reluctant to draw too many lines from somebody's actual life condition to their art. I don't know, how do you feel about that with Brian? I mean, do you, do you even want to know some of the really horrible
3: stuff? No, actually. And, and, uh, and I do think, you know, there's always the danger of the sort of tortured artist cliché, I suppose. And, and yet, as you may remember, Colin, Colin and I drove up to Lennox to Tanglewood last summer, and I, and I know some of you did as yeah, well. Yeah, these people did. To hear Brian, and, and, the, and the ostensible occasion of this was, was the 50th anniversary of the Pet Sounds album, widely regarded as, as their great milestone. And uh, it, it struck me, actually, in a, speaking of this point, that when they got to the song, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, which, which was certainly never a hit or a, you know, a big single in its own right, that the sort of painful personal poignancy of this song was just overwhelming, I think, to all of us in, in the shed. I, those of you who were there might recall that you know uh, it it is about as personal and as uh, sort of grievous uh, 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 you know a statement of of pain as i think exists in contemporary music and and i was very struck by it
0: i think you know another thing i like to talk about before we get into some more actual music is how different the beach boys sounded i mean we're sort of in two different camps here so steve and i lived through the unfolding of the Beach Boys. In other words, we were listening to our transistor radios and there weren't the Beach Boys, and then there were the Beach Boys. <laughs> Whereas I think you youngins uh, over here, you know, have had it you know, delivered to you kind of intact, whole and intact. In 1963, when Surfer Girl was a hit, um, I think the biggest songs were, the, the Beatles had one big song, that was number one that year, um, I can look it up on my, uh, on my pad for it in just a second, but like Hey Paula was a big song, Be My Baby was a big song that year. You know, they don't sound, Steve, anything like like what we just
3: sang with this audience. True, although Be My Baby, which was a, a Phil Spector production, is often cited by Brian as a record that was profoundly influential. The, the, the Phil Spector, the so-called wall of sound, was a sound world that he immediately was captivated by, and you, of course, can hear elements of that in his in his music uh, immediately. So it does represent uh, kind of a new uh, development, if you will, in pop music. But it's also grounded in, to some extent, in the past. And of course, as we've discussed, Brian's great admiration for the close harmony male groups of the 40s and 50s, the Four Freshmen. Uh, and and so on, the high lows uh, were a very dominant influence on his uh, arranging throughout his career. There's a moment in this book um, where Brian in his 60s visits the four freshmen.
0: He's going to a four freshmen concert and he was very, very influenced uh, by the the four freshmen and the Beach Boys recorded a number of four freshmen tunes like Graduation Day and I I think they sort of rewrote Their Hearts Were Full of Spring. And so he goes into their dressing room and he's, he's like maybe around 60 or something. And he's one of his, in one of his many states of terror and velchmers. But he wants to talk to the four freshmen. Now, the irony here is that the four freshmen, none of the four freshmen at this point are the four freshmen of yore. <laughs> they are other four freshmen. Um, it's like Four the Kings other freshmen. Yeah, four other, they have four other freshmen, yeah. yeah. But he still, you know, and, and, but Brian says, but it's fun anyway just to talk to them and kind of pretend. And they said, well, would you like to sing Their Hearts Were Full of Spring? And Brian thought that they wanted him to... This is sort of an intermission, I guess. He, Brian thought that he was being asked to go out on stage and sing this song with them. And his, I think, eyes widened into one of these kind of deer-in-the-headlights looks. And the, one of the guys said, oh, no, I just mean here in the dressing room. <laughs> uh, so they sang the song here in the dressing room. And then, then Brian said, you know, when you sing harmonies like that, you don't need anything else at that moment in your life. And Terry, there's a sense, I think, that we get it from Brian, that that's, that's how he's complete. Yeah. He's a very frightened, troubled guy. But music really is a place where he is okay.
2: Yeah, and I think that one song that... It, it reminds me of Surfer Girl, but it's in my room, and it almost sounds like the same chord progression and the same idea, but he talks about s- sort of sequestering himself, and, and I do think it's, it's poignant. Even if you didn't know or think it was autobiographical, it's a sad tune that offers both comfort as a teenager. I do remember thinking, oh, it's okay to go in your room because sometimes people go in their room. And that song set in that way, it's highly reminiscent of Surfer Girl, but it takes that chord progression and that sound into a more internal, introspective place that I think is is comforting and also a little eerie at the same time. It's
0: difficult to imagine Phil Spector writing that song.
2: Yeah. (laughs) He might write a song saying,
0: I'm in your room. In your
2: room, exactly.
0: And, and you should call 911 yeah. because I'm in your room right now. We're live from Watkinson School. We're going to take a break and come back with more Brian Wilson after this. We're back. We're live at Watkinson School with an amazing panel that includes Matt Sargent, Terry Schrader, and Steve Metcalf. We're talking about Brian Wilson. Here's a little bit more. Now we can talk about Pet Sounds. I know Terry, as we were kind of emailing around about this, you sort of had a kind of, what is it about Pet Sounds, right?
2: It's the album, right? It's the turning point, And it's, I think, where he transcends being a pop musician with a, a huge... Following to being viewed as a composer, sort of that deepening realm of a musical genius. And so, you know, I, I remember thinking, I know that this album is different. First of all, you can hear him talking in the right, album, and right, giving yeah. orders, and arranging, and directing. And um, as someone who grew up to be a theater director, I was fascinated by the director's voice in mm-hmm. that album where he was actually saying, more, less, do this, come on. And, um, and, and realizing that this was the seminal piece of work where someone went from being a pop star to a serious composer, uh, mentioned in the same breath as Gershwin and other, other people. So that was, that was an open question that I was hoping we could talk about a little bit.
0: There's so many places to start. I mean, Matt, you know, back to that point of this being a thing that's inside him that he needs to get out. Well, now we have stories contained here and many other sort of w- 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 places that his story has been documented. And then I'm sure a lot of you saw the movie Love and Mercy where um, he was played by two different actors. And you know, there you see what we've heard, which is him walking around the studio to these session musicians. He can't write music, he doesn't write music. He has to tell them things that he wants them to do. Some of those things in ways that we've been alluding to are counterintuitive. Um, you know, and he's telling Carol Kaye, the bass player, to play a bass line that doesn't make any sense to her. And Brian has had no way of ever hearing all of this fully... Re- I mean, that's what's going to happen. These noises in his head are going to finally be played in the studio.
4: Right, it's funny, because it's quite literally the thing that you tell your composition students, like, this won't work out. <laughs> um, but it really, really is up there with him. The thing that's curious to me, I guess, because I came to this album, I guess, as a college student in the early 2000s, and I guess amongst musicians at that time, Pet Sounds is kind of understood for young musicians as being this kind of hallmark of when pop music got serious, you know. There's certain Beatles albums and there's Pet Sounds and that's sort of the dividing line. Like before that was sort of show tunes and after that is this kind of seriousness to rock and roll, the rock and roll canon sort of thing. So
0: Steve, so many things to say about this. I mean, I
4: think the first thing that you maybe need to talk about a little bit is
0: that the Beatles felt that, that this album was a little bit of a gauntlet
3: thrown down at their feet. Oh, absolutely, and, and McCartney has said that over and over, and, and they were floored by, by Pet Sounds, as, as I think most musicians were. Of course, the interesting thing, once again, for whatever it's worth, is that Pet Sounds was not actually a, a big hit album for them. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it, I don't know, remind me, it got to number 14 or something, but I mean, it, it wasn't a huge hit. For a while, the the sort of pop tune that was on the radio more than any was was Sloop John B, which wasn't even a Brian song, it was a Jamaican folk song. So it, it took a long time, I think, for people to, that is, the general audience to to sort of come around to the idea that this really was, you know, a turning point in music and also one that they wanted to listen to. And so, you know, the idea that Brian would be touring last summer with a, with a uh, concert series based on doing, and they replicated the entirety of the album, uh, brilliantly by the way, uh, 50 years later, uh, would have been unimaginable at the time it was released because it was, it was relatively unsuccessful by their standards.
0: But why don't we bring up Jordan? Because okay, so on this masterpiece album is a masterpiece
3: among masterpieces.
4: Paul McCartney's favorite song. I Paul think, McCartney's favorite
3: yeah. song. Yeah, I think we have to say now, all these years later, God Only Knows is the, you know, is the centerpiece of this, of this album and certainly the one among others, I suppose. But, I mean, th- if there's a case to be made for a standard from, from the rock era and certainly from that album, it's this song.
5: be without you. If you should ever leave me, well, life would still go on, believe me. The world could show nothing to me, so what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without. And God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, well, life would still go on. Believe me, the world could show nothing to me. So what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without. God only knows what I'd be without you 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 God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows what I'd be without you.
0: One thing that I've noticed, even though Brian didn't write all these lyrics, but seems to have some kind of hand in them, a lot of these songs have very peculiar first lines. Like that's the first line of that song seems like a very unoptimistic way to begin. If you should ever li- leave me, life would still go on, believe me. Um, <laughs> on the same album, Where Did Your Long Hair Go? Which is a great first line, you know, what an amazing first line. Um, I also think, and this probably wasn't written by, Uh, by Brian, but at the beginning of one of the other songs that Jordan has uh, offered to us tonight, What Good Is This Dawn That Grows Into Days. You know, if that were like the beginning of an Auden poem or something, you'd go, that sounds like a pretty good poem, actually. What an interesting way to begin a song. So, Terry, in terms of that song being a musical masterpiece, these guys will deal with that. We, over here, know it to be an incredibly evocative uh, masterpiece. Uh, I, I know you should mention how it's been used, for example, cinematically.
2: Well, uh, if anyone saw Love Actually, you I know think they've that seen it that. is a little film, <laughs> a little film called Love Actually, where it provide. I mean, it's a character in the movie. It is the way that we draw and create closure to this idea of people connecting and finding some speck of love and finding closure on that set of stories and you know it just gets wider and wider and wider and wider until it becomes the heart that's the world and I think it probably is was an introduction to that song to many people but for anybody who knew it from before it just made such sense it just defied there, there could not be another piece that let that movie come to its belief about love in, in, a, in the way that that song could. And I think it's, um, I think it reached far. And that, I think that's part of why 50 years later we're still talking about this person's music as it becomes relevant again and again and again. That That's the way we talk about classical composers. We talk about music that's 50 and 100 years old and and to find new voice and new audience for the ideas expressed, um, that's something that really um, struck me is how it was used in that film where music was a character.
0: In 2014, uh, we celebrated the fifth anniversary of this radio show and so we went to Infinity Hall and we had a very nice party and Steve was out on stage with us. We wanted to sing something with the audience that sort of summed up our feelings about what it's like to have an audience. And so we did that song, we gave them the lyrics and we did that song with them because it very much felt to us that you know God only knows where we would be without people who listen to the show and just as that was happening the BBC radio they launched a new thing called BBC music and they did this amazing video i don't know how many of you have seen it it has like everybody you know Stevie Wonder and Chris Martin and like and and Kylie Minogue but also like people from the world of classical music and you know famous classical trumpet players in England and everybody's taking you know one bar or something of it and it's and you really feel like, well, this is some kind of universal song. It's like everybody's song and it's this eternal song. I wanna get the music guys just to say a few things about it without nerding out too much. Um, but, but Matt, for a pop song, if that's what this is, it's certainly very
4: structurally daring. The thing I was actually thinking about this album is maybe, because I do quite a lot of recording um, and we have more recording technology on the stage right now than they had to produce that album. Like it's a very, very, very primitive, environment. So the sort of richness and even the talking in the background, like it's really sort of at the edge of what you could pull off as a band at that time. Um, maybe even beyond. I, I make a joke in my classes that the 50s, the late 50s to early 60s are a lot like inventing fire and then taking that fire and trying to make a spaceship out of it. Um, and that's kind of where we're at with this. Um, that sort of feat alone is pretty impressive about this album.
0: I, I know Steve, you and Matt were talking over the weekend um, and that you said to him that You know, Paul McCartney had George Martin. Brian Wilson had Brian Wilson, right? The the feat of this, in a way, is also... I mean, the Beatles would sort of say to George Martin, we want it to sound like this. Make it sound like this. (laughs) And and George Martin would figure out what musicians would do that and how that would happen. Brian, this is just all him, as far as we know, right?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess you got to give a little credit at some point to those California obsession people from the Wrecking Crew, because they, they did somehow take you know, some of these uh, licks that he would just basically scream at them and sing into their ear, and they would somehow turn this into into something, you know, finished. But yeah, that's exactly right. And actually, I was just thinking, as as Jordan was singing this song, that sometimes I think when we when we put a sort of rock and roll feel to a song, it sort of makes it hard to appreciate how complex it is i mean in other words if you take just the very interesting intro to this song i mean if you were to if you were to sort of slow this down and even that little series of whole note licks I mean the composer that comes to my mind is Debussy, I mean it sounds like Debussy, it sounds like his early kind of whole note watery stuff, uh, which, which is you know, not a bad comparison for a guy with no musical training, but the complexity sometimes is harder to discern when it's got a, a kind of a rock feel to it because you're, you're sort of thinking beat more than you are progressions, but they are just unparalleled and, and certainly unprecedented.
0: We're circling around this, but when we were, some of us were up at Tanglewood that day. You know, not, not that you wouldn't go to somebody else's concert and see people transported. Particularly, we were surprised, Steve and I, at how many old people there were at this concert. Steve and I certainly, <laughs> you know, we don't have any problems, but a lot of those people looked like they were really getting old. But you know, so this is music that connects you to your youth, it's the music of your life, it really has been, you know, this backdrop. And so, you know, there are other artists I, I think that we can think of where, you know, people would have rapturous reactions, you know. But I don't know, Steve, there was something going on there. I mean, it was different somehow. It was the same, well, but it was different.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I was sort of startled by it. And And, you know, the thing is, yes, we all love the music of our youth and... And we bought, uh, at least, I, I think this would be a generation that bought 45s, right? Singles? Thank you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, th- those, we don't think about those songs anymore, most of them, you know. And yet the thing that was so startling about seeing Brian and seeing these song after song after song, not only did people know them and clearly relate to them as being, you know, beloved tunes from their youth and teens, but, but they knew them instantly a half a century later. In fact, is, is, is this a moment that yeah. we could do this? So just as an experiment, I, this may blow up in our face, but I, I'm gonna play you a few introductions to Brian Wilson to Beach Boy songs that don't give away the tune and just see if you can discern the tune from the introduction. The first couple are easy. So that's easy, we're just, you know, we're getting started here. <laughs> so here's, uh, here's a little, maybe less obvious. Yeah. Who said dance, dance, dance? dance, oh. dance, dance, dance Did they get, is there a t-shirt or something? <laughs> 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 um, okay, even a little harder. And that's that's one measure. Very good. How about this? Merry
0: Christmas, baby. Yeah. She got yeah, it. Merry Christmas, baby.
3: All right. Not quite the title, but uh, I you know, I'm not gonna do it like an Alex Trebek on you. Here,
2: but, uh, <laughs> little Saint Nick. Oh little Saint Nick. Yeah. Saint
3: okay, one more. You still believe me, right. A, a Pet Sounds ah,
0: you classic. That, you did another
2: one while we were, was,
3: that one, Oh, I'm hold. sorry, how about. You know,
2: that's school. Yeah, great.
3: All right. Which I'm embarrassed to say, I really love that song. Anyway.
0: If, if you'd gotten not here too earlier, big. you would have heard all of us do <laughs> <see> that song. <laughs> and, um, so but
3: but that is in the category yeah. of something out of the ordinary, you know. That mm-hmm. these tunes not only are still in our minds as things we have affection for, but I mean they are right there. And two bars, you all can tell what they are, which is astounding to me. I mean that's
4: half a century. I guess that sort of puts it in that American songbook category. Oh, you know, absolutely. Gershwin. At, and,
3: yeah, yeah, and and, yeah. and yeah. while we're on that, let let's finally admit, 50 years later, that this idea that the American songbook came to an end you know, when Richard Rodgers died or something is, I mean, I love Richard Rodgers, and I love Gershwin, I love all that stuff, but I mean, this is the continuation of the book, let's, right. uh, the, of the songbook. Let's, let's uh, acknowledge that.
0: So, Matt, I'm interested in getting at this whole question of, like, why this composer's music? I mean, other people are writing really great music, but there's something mm-hmm. unusual about this. And so, um, in the book, I Am Brian Wilson, there's a moment where Brian realizes he's not going to sing God Only Knows uh, on the record. He's gonna have Carl sing it. And he says that he, he thinks that he knows too much about the song uh, to sing it. And that's gonna be a problem, whereas Carl knows less. But what he says to Carl at one point is, sing straight, sing straight. And, and this goes to something that you were discussing with us, your notion that the word direct somehow or other applies to Wilson's melodies but you were finding that a little bit ineffable.
4: Can you put yeah. it into words now? I mean, it's, I think it's something we probably all feel about this music. If you think about pop music, maybe particularly pop music of the 60s, it's always, this music is always walking tempo, which is kind of strange. Like it's, it's usually a little too slow to be what feels like a radio hit. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's generally a kind of melody that he could simply speak it and it would be as viable as singing it. That's sort of one part. The other part of it, that the more I thought about this direct idea, there's, there's an idea in composers like Bach of the idea of a compound melody, or the, the thought that a melody can kind of imply whatever is not there. And one thing that came to mind when I was thinking about it is, um, you know... Yeah, exactly. And he has this, this leaping thing about his melodies where he's sort of up on the top. And then, kind of filling in his own harmony, and then you can kind of fill out the whole chord progression of what the chord progression probably is, just from this really, really simple kind of undulating line. Um, And I think that's maybe the melodic sense that I don't exactly. You could certainly come up with some rules to make a kind of copycat, but as far as just outputting that over and over and over, there's there's something really special about that.
0: Yeah. And we're back to ineffability. I mean, but there's a way in which in the, some of the ways that Steve and Matt are talking about to us less tutored uh, people, mm-hmm. then it just gets into your heart somehow. Right. right.
2: Don't Worry Baby, which is a song about worrying, baby. very right. all about right. worrying. Yeah. And you can't escape that sort of duality of what the music wants to instruct and what the words want to instruct. And separately but together, they're, they're creating this very poignant message that mm-hmm reaches in and you you, you're not left not knowing what to feel you're left knowing you should feel everything
4: yeah I mean I think to me uh, thinking about it versus the Beatles for example like if we were to take the white album I don't know if that's a good thing to put up against pet sounds there might be better albums of theirs but the Beatles you really intentionally hear the edges and you hear the raggedness and you hear the mistakes they clipped in in the middle because it's just hilarious to have them there And Brian Wilson's music tends to always be this very, very complete sort of self-referential package. And I think there's something really compelling about that. That's probably where it goes back to things like Bach, because that's how people describe Bach's music, too, that Mm -hmm. you can start at any point of the music and start making these connections to all the other points of the music almost instantly, Um, whether it's thematic, whether it's background theory stuff. But it's, it's just kind of this complete package wholesale thing, which is quite opposite, I guess, of John Lennon,
0: You know, you can dig down into the Beatles, particularly as you get to Sgt. Pepper and some of the other surrounding music, and find all kinds of interesting, rewarding things. But for me, and I guess this will confirm Steve's contention that I'm a music nerd, when I started to listen to one of the 84 different versions of Heroes and Villains, we haven't really gone into the whole issue of Smile, which of course was going to be the successor to to Pet Sounds, it was gonna be the next step up from that and Brian, because of mental illness and things going on, ultimately just kind of, and maybe the abstruseness of Van Dyke Parks' lyrics and then the fact that Van Dyke Parks walked away from the project, he just gave up, and there were all these rumors going around that he'd wiped out the tapes and all this kind of stuff, and, and then it came back. But Heroes and Villains was one of the songs that was in the mix there, and was actually released as one of those 45 singles. But later on, listening to it, I, I for example, noticed that there's a moment in this sweet like song where there's the song, the sound of kind of a calliope or merry-go-round or something, and it slows down. And as I listened with headphones, as I college student, I realized that he was having the vocalist sing different consonant sounds to kind of create this this sense. So it was kind of ca, 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 da, ba, da, da. You know, he was actually using the consonant
4: sounds to create the illusion of something slowing down. It's sort of fun to dig in at that level. Yeah. I sometimes think about I guess if smile were the big record and not pet sounds and how weird the world might be. Like it's a it's a <laughs> parallel universe where Smile is the hit album that everyone knows.
0: Love actually would end with vegetables. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we have a real Okay, we're live from Watkinson School. We're gonna take a break and come back with more Brian Wilson after this.
1: Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kion Wolf. Thanks to Jenny French and the staff at Watkinson School and Josh Dobson and the crew at Event Resources. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eugene Landy. You can hear all of our shows at wnpr.org slash Colin. And there you can also hear the whole unedited version of today's show. On tomorrow's show, guest host Mark Oppenheimer talks about vasectomies. And now, back to Colin.
0: I think it's time for these guys to to earn their keep. First of all, these seats are so uncomfortable. So
3: (laughs) So I haven't the faintest idea how we're going to stitch these together, but we're going to sing a little evening ending medley, and the order is going to be, Wouldn't It Be Nice, California Girls, and then Help Me Rhonda. Can I just say one thing about Help Me Rhonda? This is
0: something we've been discussing today. It's a disgusting song. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, this is uh, the singer, the narrator of this song is saying... I've just broken up with somebody that I was engaged to. I now am drinking destructively, and I would like to use you as the emotional equivalent of a plumber's snake,
4: you know? But it wouldn't take too long. Yeah, it wouldn't take too
0: long. And I know it wouldn't take much time. And so, if Rhonda were your friend, you'd say, don't go out with that guy, right? (laughs) He's on the rebound, he's a drunk, and he doesn't care about you anyway.
3: I don't mean to throw a damper on you. I was gonna say, thank you very much, Colin, for setting this up. Okay, so are you ready here? Mm-hmm. All right.
4: Be, be nice. nice.
0: Remember Wild Isle of Dogs here. Into this, I want to thank you all for coming out here tonight. I want to thank Steve Metcalf on the piano, Jordan Quisno. Stand up, stand up, take a bow. Come on, Matt Sargent on guitar, our head of school, Terry Schrader and fiduciary investment advisors. time. Jordan Quisnell, Matt Sargent, Terry Schrader.